listening to Have the Conversation Podcast, a podcast centered around mental health, wellness, and everything in between. I'm Kala. And I'm Leanne. We're sitting down with everyday people to talk about life and the lessons they've learned, all in an effort to connect and stay encouraged. Joining us this week is Iris Weichler. Iris has been a well-known patient advocate and licensed clinical social worker for the last 40 years. She began her career working with geriatric patients who experienced catastrophic illness and counseled them and their families about adapting to these medical problems. Iris has a way of helping patients and their families understand their medical condition. She aids in helping them to cope with the disease and its impact on their lives, as is evident in the stories that she shares with us. Iris is also an award-winning author and prominent speaker presenting on topics related to infertility and caregiving. She has a heart of gold and compassion that flows out of her effortlessly. Leanne and I both enjoyed spending time with Iris, and we know that these topics on loss, infertility, and aging can be difficult to discuss. If you're struggling in these areas, connect with us, slide into our Have the Combo DMs, and we'll do our best to help connect you to people that can help. We love you, we're here for you, and we hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as we did. We were just chatting kind of about what we were going to be talking about today. You know, I was telling her, like, I'm just feeling all the emotions because, you know, I was looking back at your book and the first chapter is dealing with grief and loss. And I'm very much in the middle of that right now. So I'm very timely. I, I'm, so, I'm sorry that I'm breaking that all up again, but I'm, I'm glad that you're finding it helpful. Very helpful. Very helpful. So I just kind of wanted to jump in to the conversation because in your line of work, you've been privy to many mm-hmm. deep conversations, I would assume. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. So, many. yeah. So if you want to just kind of explain your background a little bit and we can just go from there. Okay. Um, I've been a medical social worker for 45 years now. (laughs) Uh, When I was in high school, there was a hospital nearby and I decided someday I wanted to work there. And I did. I wasn't good enough with math to be a doctor or nurse. So I ended up being a medical social worker and I had the good fortune to, uh, to work in the rehabilitation unit. And that meant working with people who have very catastrophic illnesses, life-changing illnesses like strokes and heart attacks and not heart attacks, but um, neurological disorders where they might have um, um, neurological diseases, brain tumors. We had a burn unit, so we got burn patients, um, people with MS, all kinds of things that were life-changing, life-changing for my patients and life-changing for their families. And I had the good fortune to counsel all of them. I did work with my patients. And then I also did work with my, uh, the families of the patients to help them understand what the new normal was gonna to be to adapt to the changes that happened. And I'm happy to say that 99% of the patients that came to my unit left in much better way than when they came in, which was one of the great joys of my work. Um, and that was also a collaboration with other practitioners as well. And together, we worked together to make people whole. After that, I, uh, I went through infertility treatment on my own. And I, I promised myself that if I was lucky enough to have a child, that I would try to help other people with infertility. And so uh, I, I got the jackpot there. And I did have oh. a girl, healthy little girl after a lot of misses and a lot of heartache. And so I ended up uh, working for Resolve, which is a national infertility association. And I also did crisis counseling there on the phone. And then I ended up doing uh, workshops and groups with people. 
And then I started writing and I ended up writing a book um, called Riding the Infertility Roller Coaster because I wanted to be able to reach more people than I was reaching here locally. Um, and I wrote that to help people who were coping with infertility. And it got me started on writing. Um, and so I started writing um, and then I decided to write a book about my father um, who was a very beloved person in my life. He was a great guy and um, I thought it would be really nice to write about his life by society standards. He was very ordinary. He had a high school education. He was a junk man. Um, so people might look, look down on that. Um, I thought he was an extraordinary person. He ended up uh, fighting in World War II. He served for four years and he was quite a patriot as well. So when I started writing the book, uh, I told him about it and he agreed to sort of write his little autobiography and combine that with my book, which I thought was really incredible. Um, I always look at other books that are out there about a topic I'm going to write and I didn't see anything that included the voice of the caregiver and the voice of the person being taken care of. So I thought that would be really great. And so I did write the book. It's a memoir about him, but it's also a self-help book, again, to help people who uh, have uh, been in the caregiver role. And I try to use his life as sort of a springboard to help other people kind of go through. There are universal issues that caregivers face. And so I wanted to um, give them as much information. It's the social work part of me. You got to give people resources and you got to help them network and you, you got to give them information. So, um, so I combine that in my book. I still write today. I've been writing now for 20 years. And um, my belief is that when people are in crisis, uh, that's when they need help the most. And I believe if you educate them and you help them know that they're not alone, that that will empower them and that will um, help them to get through the crisis. And so all of my writing, uh, the articles I do now and my books, I, I wrote another book so early on about helping people cope with hospitalizations. And so all of my books have the theme of advocacy and empowerment for people. And uh, I think that's really important to do. And I think if people have that, that it'll help them um, get the skill set they need to cope and to survive sometimes things that feel like you can't survive them. Mm -hmm. oh, yes. <laughs> so when you worked in the hospital, we'll start there because that's so much to cover. <laughs> like sure, it's amazing sure. work that you've done. Thanks. Um, usually when people see like crisis and trauma and disease, they turn away. Like I, I have a tough time. I, I knew I couldn't be, you know, a nurse or work in a hospital, not just because of my math inabilities, <laughs> but also because I can't give blood without looking away. You know, I, I don't have the stomach for it. So I, I would say most people have kind of like an aversion to stuff like that. What gave you the strength to kind of turn towards it and, and know that you want to surround yourself by that and help the people that are in the middle of it? I'll tell you a little secret. I turn away when they draw blood too. Do you? <laughs> so I have no excuse then, I guess. <laughs> and when you're going through infertility treatment, that happens a lot. <laughs> um, you know what happened? Um, it's really interesting you say that because when people would visit our unit, all they would see is um, people that were disabled or people in wheelchairs or people with in obvious injuries. Um, and when I, I worked, started working there, I saw people that um, could get better. And I saw people that could, um, would have the, the ability to overcome whatever illness brought them there with the support of the team. And 
it's, it's such a beautiful scene on a rehabilitation unit like that because it's a multidisciplinary approach. You have an occupational therapist, a physical therapist, a speech therapist, a nurse and a doctor and social worker. And we're all there to help each other to help the patient become whole. And I love, I love that piece of it. I love helping the person become whole again. Um, and I also think that people are eager to work with you when they're in that situation. And so I felt that my work with them really made a difference. It, sometimes when you're a social worker and you're working with people, in my early career, I worked with child abuse families. They weren't so interested in working with right. me. Right, <laughs> that's where, I, yeah, I can only imagine. Because I think social worker and I automatically think that role. So it's so interesting to hear your take yeah, and I worked with adolescents too. I did a, uh, a residential treatment program with kids who had no other opportunities. If they failed with us, they were going to jail or they, they had nothing. And so to work with people that were so eager to, to work with, with you is, is really rewarding right off the bat. Um, and they're very vulnerable. And so they're open to, to talking about what's going on. And I, I, the, some of the lessons I learned from the unit, I, I take with me to my, to my dying day, because the things that I learned were that people are stronger than they think. That was number one. And I also met people who said, in my retirement, I wanted to do this. I wanted to travel or I wanted, and they put a lot of things off. And what I learned from them is not to put things off, to do things, live in the moment and do what you can. So it sparked me to travel all over the world and to do things that I wanted to do and, and do as much as I could. And um, it was so interesting because when I talked to my patients, the stroke patients would say, thank God I didn't have an amputation. And the amputees wow. would say, thank God I didn't have a head injury. Mm. And so people, people get perspective when they're there and, and they sort of, um, they sort of adapt in ways that you can't imagine that you can in human spirit. Oh my God. When you work in a rehab unit, you really see that. And you, you find it energizing, not depressing. You find it, uh, every day was a gift as far as I was concerned. I just, I just loved it. I really loved it. And, um, as a team, we, we were pretty, pretty formidable. It didn't matter what illness brought that person in. <laughs> we, yeah. were gonna, we were going to do it what we could to get them out in much better shape. And so nothing better than that. Wow. That's fantastic. So what made you leave doing that? The thing that made me leave was um, we got a new director and the new director was changed it up. Not, <laughs> she was not good. Um, I, I had all the other social workers that were in my group. We we're still friends today. We see each other all these years later but she was sabotaging things and she was doing things that we felt were hurting our patients. Mm -hmm. So because of that, we, um, we, we decided that we couldn't stay. So a bunch of us left, they lost some very, very good people. The head doctor in my unit tried to create a position for me so that I could stay under his budget um, because he didn't, they didn't want me to leave, but um, he, he wasn't able to do it. So that's the reason, the reason that I left. Otherwise I, that was, that would have been the place I, I spent my entire career if, if I had my brothers and if things stayed the same. I would have been fine with that. Yeah. It's just interesting that, you know, you do all the advocacy work on, on your end, but you don't think about the people behind the scenes who have to, you know, 
advocate on your behalf. And that's just an interesting dynamic as well. Um, to, to well hospitals about. are very political places. That, absolutely, absolutely <laughs> they are. <laughs> but I would not trade my time there. The relationships that I made uh, professionally and personally, uh, they still stay with me. It's lasted a long time, I'm so grateful. And what a wealth of knowledge, <laughs> I mean, too, yeah. for, from that. That's just. Yeah. And the other side of the coin there, the other thing I didn't mention was, um, so eventually I went back to, I went back to that hospital. I, I got promoted. I became director of social work. And there was another hospital, a sister hospital. And I ended up being the head of social work there. And so I covered the emergency room all the time. And that was a totally different experience because you know, people suddenly come in for the reasons you can, you can imagine, car accidents, domestic violence, um, all kinds of injuries, psychiatric issues. And, and it's that very quick turnaround kind of thing. You have to assess them, you have to figure out what they need, and then you move on. I had patients on the rehab unit that back then, this was a while ago, but they, they stayed for a year, 10 months mm -hmm. a year. And so it was a really different experience. And so what I did in the ER there, um, I was like it in terms of, of psych psychological, psychiatric kinds of services. So um, I ended up creating a, a team of volunteers because I was, my predecessor was sleeping on the floor of her office because she never went home and I didn't want to do that. But um, I also started supervising graduate students and social work students. And so I, uh, I love teaching. That's another piece of what I love doing. And so that, that was a really great experience too. I love that, but it was a very different sort of one. It was felt much more uh, alone there in terms of, and, and quick that I had to adjust to the quickness of it all. And um, which was such a contrast to what I was used to on the rehab unit, but emergency rooms are team approach too. You're working with a doctor and a nurse under crisis situation, but it's, um, it's very quick. You don't have much time. You have to make a decision. You have to triage and sort of make, make room for the next patient. So you don't know, you don't know exactly what happens to the people that go through there where it was the opposite mm -hmm. on rehab. I, I did all the discharge planning. So I knew exactly what happened to my folks when they went home. Yeah. That's a tough transition. Yeah, it was, but it was, it was really great too. I love that too. Um, again, you feel like you're making a difference. You really yeah. do. Well, you talked about it. It taught you, you know, how strong the human spirit is and that you can't take days for granted. Do you have like, I'm sure you have plenty, but do you have certain people you think of like when you're having a tough day, like that bring you back to reality? Yeah. Yeah. I definitely, I definitely do. Um, one is a young woman who was 32 who came in on a gurney because her legs wouldn't move. She was paralyzed from her legs, her waist down. She was perfectly healthy. And as they were wheeling her in, she said, you know, there's a, uh, a race that they run in my hometown and I plan on running it next year. Mm. And she did. Wow. Mm, I got I, goose. I, Me too. <laughs> what, what was wrong with her? She just she had something up? called, it's called Guillain-Barre syndrome. Mm. And it's uh, a neurological disorder that can just strike any organ and they still don't really know exactly what happens. Um, but it, it can cause organs to shut down. It can cause limbs to shut down. So she had to learn to walk again and move. And she was amazing. Her little boy was there. They, she was like five. He'd push her around in her wheelchair mm. and, uh, or sit in her lap. And um, I also had another, I had some, the burn patients were incredibly inspiring too. I had a, 
a young man. He was he was 32 and he was a roofer and he was on a roof and the power company was supposed to shut the power off and they didn't. And he had a pole and the pole touched the wire. And the current went through his skull and his skull acted as a conductor. And when current comes in and it has to go out and it came out in his knees. And so he had some serious burn injuries, um, couldn't, couldn't walk at the time. Um, it was really, really tough, but he, he had an incredible spirit, incredible family, and uh, he left in much better shape than he came in. <laughs> do you still keep in contact with any of, I know you said with your team you do, but. Yeah, no, no, I, I, the patients, I haven't, it's been a long time, so I haven't stayed in touch with them. But I did when they left for many years, several years after I did stay in touch with them. And I ran groups too. Like I, I ran a group for stroke patients and some of my old stroke patients would, would come back too when I did the group. They were in-house people and then other people would come and, um, and, and I would check in on them. That was a part of what I did too after they left just to make sure that things were going okay. Mm, that's awesome. Yeah. So after that, was that when you were having your trouble with infertility and all of that? Yeah, well, a few years after that, short time after that, um, I had, uh, I got married much later. I was 42 when I got married because my husband and I, my to-be husband was traveling all around the world as I was. Um, and then um, when we decided to get married, I didn't even know that I could get pregnant. I got pregnant a month after we got married and um, but I lost the baby. And at the time, I, I mean, I didn't grow up saying I want to be a mother someday and I want to be a wife and I want, these are things that I want to happen, but I didn't want to be a wife and I didn't want to be a mother. And after I lost my baby the first time, I really wanted to be a mother. And then I realized how important it was. Um, I got pregnant a second time and then I lost that baby. And so, um, at that point I, I was, uh, I knew that, that because my age was an issue. And so then we, uh, we got infertility treatment and it turned out I needed to have an egg donor because quality of my eggs were not good enough to sustain a healthy pregnancy. So, um, so we, we picked a donor and this was after many months and then all set to go and the donor got pregnant. So we had to start all over again. Oh my God. It was really, gosh. really hard. I mean, we literally getting ready to do, to do the procedure the next day to, to, to get me going. And then, and then she, she got pregnant. So we had to start all over again. And so we had one last, one last shot at it. Um, we, we found somebody else and I had decided that if that didn't work, that I couldn't, do this emotionally or physically anymore because it was just too much. Um, and they came in, they said, we have three embryos and I, we had to decide immediately what to do. And I said, well, tell me more about them. And they said, one was, one was marginal, one was okay. And one was looked pretty great. Yeah. So I said, give me the great one. And yeah. I'll take pretty great. <laughs> I'll take pretty great. That's a good place. I took pretty, pretty great. And, and she, she worked out. Okay. It was quite, it was an, uh, it was a miraculous day. I was, got very sick um, when we were delivering her and uh, it was a really scary time. I write about it in my infertility book, but my, uh, my placenta ruptured. So I was bleeding pretty heavily. And at the time I didn't know whether the problem was me or my baby because I, they put me on some pretty intense drugs. Yeah. 
but I knew I was laying there and, and I heard them on the phone and they were paging a doctor to come staff from the emergency room. And I, I've been around hospitals enough to know, and I could tell by their voices, the doctors and the nurses' voices that something really bad was happening. And, but I didn't know if it was me or the baby. Mm. And so- um, That is they, like terrifying. <laughs> It was terrifying because yeah. I thought, oh my God, if, if we've gotten to this point and right. lose her, I, I just, yeah. and uh, so they put the little curtain up so you can't see what's happening from your waist down. So I, I just didn't know what was going on. And then I heard her, uh, her cry and I heard the nurse say to my husband, do you want to hold your baby or do you want to check on your wife? And he, and he, he knew the baby was fine. And he said, came over to me and said, she's fine. And then he said, I think I'll, I'll hold my wife's hand. And so when, when that happened, then I knew I was the one in trouble. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You're like, that's a tell. Couldn't have been this situation. <laughs> <Question> answered. <laughs> Isn't it amazing how resilient we are? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then it was fine. I was sick for a little while. You know, I was sick for a few days, but I, I will never forget the moment that I hold her because I couldn't hold her for a while because um, I was so sick and then when they brought me in the, the recovery room and he handed her to me um, she just latched on my nose and I just felt this uh. wave of, of I literally felt like a wave of love surround me and, and joy and I just looked at her and I just yeah life's just different was, <laughs> this is the next chapter yeah yeah, yeah. It's so powerful like that. Looking back on your infertility struggle now, does it seem like a blip when at the time, I know it's so heavy um, when you're going through it. What does it feel like now looking back at it? I think about it almost every day. Really? What a blessing it is. She just, yeah. my daughter's 20 now and she was just here. Um, and, and I can't tell you, but every day I just feel so lucky and so grateful because it, it could have gone obviously the other way. Um, and so um, it, 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 I feel the sense of time watching her grow up. <laughs> sure. But I certainly don't feel the sense of time in terms of the emotions that were associated with it. Mm -hmm. And I still work with people around infertility. I still write about it. So it's still a part of my life. I counsel people. And so it's, it's still a part of my life in, a, in all the more meaningful way, I think. I really believe that. Um, sometimes you're, you're put through challenges and, and there's a reason for it. Um, and then you learn from it and hopefully you can pay back in really meaningful ways. And so that's the way I looked at it. That's what I wanted to ask, since I know that you counsel people through those kinds of things. Now, how did you get through it yourself? Did you have support and help and, um, counseling for you? Um, I had a fantastic doctor, <laughs> Um, well, in the middle of all this too, they took him away from us. Um, there was a, a coup in the clinic I went to and it was a power struggle and they took away him and the other great doctors there. So that was really wow. hard Jeez. because he was too good. He spent too much time with the patients and cared about them too much. Um, and they were more, the director was interested in money more than anything else. Um, but I, I, uh, I, I'm lucky enough to have really great family um, because of my medical background and my hospital background. Um, and I educated myself, Resolve is a national infertility organization. And I went, I went to groups um, to help with that. 
And then one of the most amazing things that happened was, um, so here I am, this uh, older, more mature mom is how they like to say, a mature mom. Mature mom. <laughs> and there was no one who was a contemporary of mine after she was born. And I felt really alone. And I was trolling parks nearby to meet other moms, new moms my totally. age. I, been there. <laughs> and, and then I ended up at a Wendy's talking to someone who's 21 and we were speaking different languages. And I said, I can't go on like this. <laughs> <laughs> I have to take it into my own hands. Yeah. And so I contacted Resolve, this infertility association. And I said, are there any women my age? And they said, there are. And two blocks away were two women. And one of them started a group and this is 19 years ago yeah and we're still really great friends <laughs> I I met the most amazing people and our and the, and the other beautiful things was our, our kids have grown up together um knowing other kids like them and so um that part has been amazing they're still our group we still we love each other dearly we get together um our kids we're friendly now. Now the kids are in college and they're sort of all spread out. So they, they're not in touch the way they were, but some of the kids are, my daughter's still in, in touch with a couple of kids. In fact, one of them, she's going to meet in New York this weekend, hopefully. So that part was a beautiful, beautiful blessing that nothing, nothing would have prepared me for that. And it, so in answer to your question, it helps so much to have people my age and as a group, we could say to each other, what do we tell our kids about how, how they became a part of our lives? Mm -hmm. um, what, what, you know, what do we do when people make comments about our age? What, you know, we just were sounding boards for each other and we still are today. Actually, we really were very close. And, um, and because we went through it all together, we speak the same language and it's such a, it's so much easier when you have someone that understands and then you have that commonality and experience. And so that was uh, an incredibly lucky thing that happened and another thing in my life that I'm so grateful for. They really, they really helped me through it a lot. Yeah, it's a huge bond. Mm. Yeah, mm -hmm. huge, especially because your kids get along too. Yeah, I, that's just so yeah, cool. Kids, and, and most of the kids in the group came about the same way that my daughter did. And then later a couple people adopted kids too, but so um, it, it helped so much just for them to know that they had other kids. And then I, I wrote a disclosure book for my daughter when she was two, which is just a little book just saying, and you write it age appropriate. So it was kind of like little short poems with pictures. And so um, it's really, it was really funny because she, she was using that language as a little kid, you know, egg donor. I'm an egg donor baby. Oh, we were, <laughs> so cute. We were at a little, and they called it Fantasy Kingdom. And it was like a place where you could go to dress up like a fireman or a princess yeah. or whatever. And I was behind a corner and there was a woman that came over to talk to my daughter and I'm watching and, and she says to her, um, do you have any brothers or sisters? And my daughter's, <laughs> my daughter was three and she said, no, I'm an egg donor baby. <laughs> and the woman, the woman didn't know what to say. It was really funny. <laughs> so she just slowly so backed away. Yeah. yeah. That's nice. And I went over and gave my daughter a big hug. Yeah. Oh, I love so that sweet. so much. That's beautiful. Oh, that's there's that's something so to be said about like you talked about resilience of women but also like of of children oh, just beyond. some people are really afraid to have serious conversations with their kids thinking it's too much 
for them to handle. But then it's like, what is that age to the point where it might be too late or they find something out from a friend or find out in a way that you wouldn't have wanted them to. Um, how, how did you know to do that, to write that book for her? I knew, I knew from the, from the beginning that it was really important to be honest with her. And I don't jump into anything without doing my research. And I did spend a lot of time with Resolve. The very first, when we decided to do this, and the program was at my hospital, the initial one we went to. So I, I thought my husband needed to catch up where I was in terms of knowing stuff. Ah, so yeah. <laughs> to a group. <laughs> and we're in a group. I like how you said that, Cal. <laughs> I mean, I get it. Yeah. And this man, the man sitting next to us, he was like 45 or 50. And the first thing he talked about was, a cousin came up to him to talk about his adoption and his parents had never told him. Yes. I hear about that all the time. The first time that he had, he had learned and he was angry. I jeopardized his relationships with his family and he felt betrayed. And this is a grown man, you know, 50. There's a wonderful book about this called inheritance by Danny Shapiro, who's a really great writer. Okay. And she wrote about it. In fact, I wrote her a letter after I read her book because I thought it was so remarkable. I thought it was the most uh, honest and beautiful portrayal uh, talking about the mixture of emotions that, that you get when you find out that the person you think is your mom and your dad isn't. God, I can't imagine. And she found out accidentally she was, her husband was doing an ancestry spit in the tube thing. And he said, I'm doing this. Why don't you? And so she's like, okay. And she was 54. And she and the, the results come back and then she finds out that her father isn't her biological father. And at that point, her mother was gone and he was gone. So where, where do you go with it? What do you do with mm. that? And so that's the rest of the book, her talking about their journey in terms of dealing with that. Because think about your identity and how closely entwined it is with your experiences with your family when you're growing up. Oh my gosh. Yes. And and all of a sudden you find out that that, that wasn't real. And how, how do you feel about that? So I, I did not want my daughter to feel that way. And also if you're not honest, one of the things they can take away is that there's some shame about how they came about. And you certainly, you don't, you, that's the last thing that you want. And so I wanted to make sure that she, she felt loved and she also knew we would, we were willing and happy to do anything we could. To, yeah. To she was wanted her. for sure. She was very wanted that. and very loved. Yeah. yeah. I love that wow. so much. And it's prompted some really great discussions afterwards too. So that, that's been really good. Yeah. I would With think your Pardon? With your daughter? With my daughter. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Do you want to share any? I mean, what are some of the things that do come up as, you know, I don't want you to speak on her behalf, obviously, but I'm just so curious, where where do those conversations lead? Because um, that's not something that I have the experience in. I really wouldn't know. Well, um, so part of it depends if you have an anonymous donor or you have a donor that you know. Um, but especially as you're growing up, um, you sort of want to fill in the blanks. Um, I like ballet. Does it? Does the person who was my donor were they a ballerina? Um, and and sometimes sometimes you have very limited information about your donor too. I mean, you may know the color of their eyes, and that's that was another really huge issue for us. We sat down at our kitchen table, and you get a one piece, one page, and all it says is 
the age of the person, the color of their eyes, their height, what their career was, what their education is, and why they did it. Wow. And of course, they, they're screened for family history of drugs and yeah. psychological and medical. So you have to make a, a life-changing decision based on this one page. Um, essentially a profile. <laughs> like that's, a profile. Yeah. Yeah. So it really calls into question your values. So there was a profile that I thought was really lovely that I felt connected to because I wanted someone that physically looked like me too. Yeah. And then she had a high school education and then there was another person who had a college education. And so we had a lot of, my husband and I had a lot of talks about it. it how important is that? Does that really matter? You, so it really, the core, your core values really come out and you're trying to anticipate what you're going to feel in 15, 20 or 30 years too, based on this, this choice, based on the most limited of information. That is and it's so heavy. Oh my god! It's gosh. very challenging. And you just, you know, it's like throwing a dart at a dartboard with your eyes closed. You know, you hope it lands somewhere good. Right. You, yeah. But you, you just don't know. And you, you also don't know for sure that you, you hope they're telling the truth, but you really don't know. And so. Wow. How much time do they give you to make that decision? Well, you, it's not the making the decision part. Um, when you find an agency, you usually get some people in a, in, in a few months, but then you have to wait. You have to wait months because you have to, um, they have to go on medication. You have to go on medication. You have to fool their body into thinking it's in a certain part of the, of the uh, cycle. We have to match their cycle with your cycle. So in my case, it took nine months from the time I could have had a baby. It took nine months from the time I picked somebody to the time that we actually were able to do it. It took a long time. It's a long process. I'm sure there's lots of emotions <laughs> through those, through that time. I can only oh imagine. My. Yeah. Yeah. And you, and I did a group with people. One of the things that happens with people who have infertility, when you've had losses like that, I've, I've, there was a third miscarriage I had. I didn't mention that. So when you've had multiple losses like that, you don't want to allow yourself to believe that it's really going to work because totally. you don't want to go through pain again. Yeah. And you don't believe it. So that moment I was describing when I was holding my baby, that was the first time I really believed that it was oh. going to happen. And so I did a group with people who had infertility issues and had babies that, and the whole point of the group was to help them to um, enjoy and celebrate their pregnancies um, and believe that it was going to be okay. Yeah. Because no, everyone's afraid something's going to happen. And so they don't, they don't celebrate those moments, those milestones. And there's a lot of fear and anxiety associated with it. And so in the group, I, I tried to help them to, to enjoy it and to celebrate it and to not be afraid. And that was, a, that was a lot of fun to do that group. I love What that. are some of the things that you do to get them back into that headspace of feeling deserving and worthy of like such a miraculous thing that they're a part of? Well, we would talk about um, um, help them pick a milestone that they would celebrate, like getting through the first month of pregnancy, getting through the second month, the third month, um, and also helping them stay on track being a, being a couple because one of the things that happens that infertility takes over your life and it and, does <laughs> yeah. and and, and, and yeah. even the, the just getting getting pregnant you, you when you start having sex uh, to create a baby and not with for romantic love purposes or for mm -hmm. other purposes and so that's a lot of what the counseling I did was about was to celebrate their relationship as a couple 
Mm -hmm. um, what can they do apart from the pregnancy and the infertility piece? What did you do when you were dating that you really missed? Can you do that now? Um, we talked about um, have, having them tell family and friends what they needed to help them get That's through. That's powerful. It. A lot of time, yeah. family and friends don't know what to say. Right. But also, what do you say to them? What do you mm -hmm. tell them? Because um, some people, it is want, just so deeply personal, you know, yeah. it is, it is, that would be a very, that's a very hard thing to try to communicate amongst people that you love and care for, because you do want to bring people in on the process, but it, man, it's so isolating too. I can right, only imagine. Right. And then there's that, again, that fear something's going to go wrong. So you don't want people necessarily to know. To know. And then something go wrong. My husband and I sort of disagreed. He wanted to tell the world. And I, I told him, I can't, I, I don't want to do that till we're three months in. And I know that things look like they're going to be okay. So yeah. um, a lot of pressure. We told immediate, immediate family. <laughs> mm -hmm. So yeah, there's a lot of things that, that go into it. Um, and it is very emotional and it is very intense. And that in answer to your question, Leanne, having those people in your life that you can count on, that you can talk to. Um, and I'm a great believer in, in peer counseling and talking to other people that are going, have been through what you're going through. I think their wisdom and just knowing that other people have gotten through and how they've gotten through makes a huge difference. Yeah. I saw that on one of the presentations that you offer, um, you talk about how to manage stress mm -hmm. during infertility, the infertility process. Yeah. Uh, what are some ways that you recommend that stress management? And in general, well, one of the things that I think is really important is, you know, there's that line about how much is too much to do in terms of exercise and you feel like an egg and you feel very fragile and you certainly don't want to do anything. So um, I always talk to people about and what I did was um, I treated myself to little things like a nice bath, like a walk. I couldn't work out at my health club, but I went for walks. Um, I take a lot of joy in movies. So I would go treat myself to a movie, um, spend time with good friends. Um, and it's the same with caregiving too. I think what happens with the stress of caregiving in a way, infertility is very isolating. And so is caregiving. You get so wrapped up in it mm. that you forget about yourself. Um, and so I, I think it's really important to remember to do things that um, make you feel good meditation yoga um i took my first yoga class when i was pregnant <laughs> oh never so cool <laughs> but um so things things like that um things that felt good felt relaxing felt like little treats mm -hmm. and what good distractions it's amazing how it always goes back to the basics like that. Go yeah, take a walk, totally. take a bath, read a book, watch a movie. Well, like Look at us today. I mean, taking a walk is such a treat. <laughs> you yeah. guys, you're in Texas, so you, you're going to be doing it. But I'm in Chicago, and believe me, every nice day right now, we're all outside. <laughs> you're yeah. counting them, yeah, I our bet. Day, our days are numbered. Yeah. <laughs> you have um, a rough couple months headed your way. Yeah. <laughs> and, and another thing, um, my husband and I are really into music. We love music. And so um, <laughs> we would turn on music in the kitchen and dance or listen yeah, to music. That's what we do. <laughs> too. That's our thing too. I love that. Yeah. Love yeah. that. I know when I was pregnant, um, both times, like something that I did for like myself to really just get through it and to try to celebrate those things was I started going for like massages every month just to like, 
do something for me. And I look forward to that. I miss that. I need to get that back in my regimen oh, now. Me, you and me both. I totally get that. My massage therapist is just around me, behind me in the alley. And so she's very close. That's I awesome. can reach out and touch. But I haven't been back since the pandemic. I'm yeah. kind of nervous about it. But I, I got, I miss that so much. Yeah. <laughs> so good. Well, we talked a little bit um, briefly just a few minutes ago about caregiving and kind of that transition. Um, let's move into that part of your career and how that started. Let's let's just jump right into caregiving. <laughs> uh, well, I think that time on the rehab unit was my uh, chapter one and my lesson on caregiving. <laughs> totally, yeah, definitely. Sure. Yeah, and, and that, that was a thing, one of the things that certainly stayed with me and changed my life forever. And I I saw what a difference it made if, if the, my patient had a, a, a family member or people in their lives that were there. And as, as I told you, Kella, um, I had a couple friends that were single. I, I did have another job after I worked in the hospital in the ER um, where I was doing um, medical assessments and I was there for many years too. And uh, a friend of mine who was there, who was single, who was 40, got, uh, got cancer and um, she uh, was very sick and she was very alone. Her family wasn't here. And so myself and some of our colleagues were the, became the caregivers for her. And that, um, that was huge, huge for me, huge for her. Uh, she was amazing. Um, and then I told you, Cal, we had another friend more recently, a few years ago, who had brain tumor, who was actually my age. And he, he was single as well. And so our group of friends got together and became his caregivers. Um, and so those, uh, those are really important lessons. One of the things that happens when you're taking care of someone is you learn so much from them and you learn so much about yourself and you learn so much about life and you figure out what's important. Um, and so those lessons uh, really had an impact on me. And, and I, I've never been afraid of talking to people about death and dying. And, and so it, it felt comfortable for me to do these sorts of things. I think you can learn so much from people um, when they are in a state where they're, where they're very ill and they're examining their lives and examining what's important. And so um, I think that's, that's when it started and it's sort of been a little theme in my life. Infertility is about life and death too and yeah. the loss is there. And so I think it started at the hospital and it never really left. <laughs> and then my mother, my mother became quite ill. Um, she was very young. She died when she was 57. Wow. Um, I don't know if you're at that part of the book yet, but um, she uh, she had breast cancer and, and she was cancer free for a few years, five years, and then she went for her exam and it had metastasized to her brain. And so my dad was her primary caregiver, but I was also a caregiver for her as well. And then later, of course, for my dad. Um, so they're, they're profound, intense, um, certainly challenging experiences, but... Um, so meaningful in a lot of ways, um, I think. I think, you know, you use the word resiliently and I think, I think you, see, you can see that resiliency and you can feel it and, you, um, and it makes a huge difference when you're with someone and you know that you can help them to, to, face, to face what's coming, to face death. We are gonna have to face death at some point. And so I, I think, learning to be a good caregiver and giving other people skills to be a caregiver is um, an amazing gift to give. And so that's why I started writing what I did. And that's why I wrote role reversal. Um, 
to use my dad's life as, as a, an example of, of, um, as, of what we can do and um, what challenges are there and then, and then uh, so that we feel less helpless about what options are and better prepared to face, to face what's gonna be coming down the road. And I, I was really lucky because I came from a very loving, loving family. There was never a time when I was growing up that there wasn't a relative who wasn't my brother or sister living in our house. Oh, wow. We, my grandparents were there. My cousins were there. Um, my uncle was there. And so I grew up in a household where that was just, it was in the, in the air. I mean. Are you guys Italian? No, we're, we're Jewish. <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs> Russian Jews. <laughs> But um, Jewish and Italian are very close, I think. It's together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We both love food and we use our hands a lot, right? (laughs) (laughs) And family is very important. And so so I think my parents instilled that in in my siblings and I. And so it's been there. It's been there since I was a little kid. Since the very beginning. Um, you, You wrote a part in your book about getting that call from the assisted living center. Oh, yeah. from your dad yeah. and it's yeah. that dreaded call of um I think you should come right away <laughs> oh yeah that when he was in the nursing home you're yes. talking about? yeah sorry yeah yes. yeah it's a self-help home mm-hmm. yes um and not, but I had had that conversation with him that day earlier we we knew that my dad was fading and I I wrote in the book the scene when I got off the elevator and the physical therapist was working with a patient I didn't realize it was my dad till I looked a second time because he was so thin and he was so fragile. Um, the interesting thing about this is, and I, I, I'm not sure I mentioned it in the book, but um, a couple of days before my dad told me, he said something to me about, oh, I have to go to work. And at that point he was pretty confused. And I said, well, you've had a very long life. I think it's time for you to retire. You don't really need to work anymore. He's 90, 97 at this point. <laughs> and, um, and he said, he said, no, I have to take care of your sister. I have to take care of your brother. I have to. So even literally in his last couple of days, he was going to work so he could take care of us in his mind. And so that day when, after that conversation, when they put him down to bed and I could see how every day was a struggle and he wasn't eating. And I just said to him, um, if, if you're ready to go, we're ready to say goodbye. Mm. And, um, and I went home and 15 minutes later, I got the call you're just describing, Kel, and I rushed yeah. back. Um, this was another thing, though, I learned from my patients. I had patients that I really believe this. I believe that people have some, some semblance of control about when they're at that stage, about when they let go, when they die. And I can tell you that um, I had patients that waited, they, they waited, a relative had been at their bedside all day and they, per, the relative went to get a cup of coffee and that's when my patient died. Yeah. I had a patient who was declared dead and they brought her back. She coded and they did CPR and they, and they did the paddles and they brought her back. And she was able to tell me the conversation that was occurring around her when she was legally dead. Whoa. That's what happened to my grandma. 
Like yeah. it almost became, and this is horrible, but this is my family. It kind of became a joke because it just kept happening. And we were like, all right, we, you know, you start crying and then they're back. And then you're like, yeah. oh my gosh. And then it happens again. And then again, and you're like, what is happening? She wasn't ready to go yet. She, she wasn't. wasn't. And that's such a testament to who she was. I mean, yeah. I heard, I heard Kubler-Ross speak. Do you, do you know who Kubler-Ross is? No, I don't. I don't. So Kubler-Ross is probably the most famous person. She wrote a book called De On Death and Dying. And she created the five stages of, of dying. And she was a huge proponent of she was the first person to say, it's okay to touch someone who's, who's, who's dying. Wow. And she was the first person to say, talk to them, find out what they want to say. She, she was the person. Um, and she, and I saw her, she's about three feet tall. She was the tiniest person, <laughs> but she came on a stage and she filled the room. It was just amazing. Um, and, and one of the stories she, she told was she told a story of a little, she was working with a little boy who was 12. He was in the hospital, he was terminal. And they were talking and he said to her, I'm going to be joining my aunt. And she's like, what do you mean? And there's a knock on the door. The nurse called Kubel Ross out of the room and she said his, his aunt had just been in a car accident and she died. Whoa. Yeah. And so um, anyway, what what it what I learned from all of this and learned from my patients is I, I always say to my families, when a, when a loved one was in a coma or appeared like they couldn't hear, talk to them like they're listening. Tell them what you want to say, so that there's no words unsaid. When my mother was in the hospital and um, they brought her into the hospital like seven in the morning, and the doctor came to me and said, <clears throat> she's not going to make it through the morning. And my brother was in um, California and my sister was in New York. And I ran to the phone and I called them and I said, jump on a plane. And at that stage, um, what happened was I went to my mother and I said, they're on the way. Danny and Karen are on the way. And my mother, there was like a peace that came over her when she was in the hospital. Um, it was really incredible. And she opened her eyes and we had this amazing conversation. My brother and sister didn't get in till late that night and she was there and she talked to them and she said what she wanted to say. They said what she did. We were all around her bed. She closed her eyes and she died. Mm -hmm. She wow. waited until they came because she wanted to say goodbye to them. And those kinds of things I've seen over and over in my career. It's very powerful and it's very moving. And uh, I really, really believe that that's important to keep in mind when you're a caregiver and when you're, you're, um, t you're around other people that uh, are sick or are aging because aging is a very scary thing for people too. Um, they're very powerful lessons, but really important ones. And I think if you know that and you believe it and you're comfortable with it, it makes your role as a caregiver a little easier too. You feel a little more comfortable about it. A lot of it depends on the person you're taking care of and how they're facing their illness, yeah, that's their true. impending death. If someone's scared or someone's in pain or uncomfortable or very dependent on all their care needs, that, that's one situation versus someone, you know, someone else. It just depends. But um, I think respecting where the person is at is really important as best as you can. If you're working, if you have taken care of someone who's confused or disoriented or has dementia or Alzheimer's, you still can use that though, because when they say something, you um, 
if they say I want to go home, for example, and, and mm-hmm. don't take that at face value, you think, what are they missing? What are they needing that they had at home that, that they don't have here? So they're giving you clues, even if they can't articulate it. You want to look beyond the meaning of what they say. That's really um, interesting. Yeah, that's, that's so interesting because it can so easily get dismissed, you know, especially if the person is confused all the time. Right. It's easy to say, oh, they just don't know what they're talking about. But that's right. so that it's almost like you have to translate it. Yeah, I'll tell you a really funny story. Um, I had a patient on the rehab unit and we were at the nursing station and she was totally with it. She was 85, but she was, she was writing a book. I mean, she was, I loved her. I was <laughs> going to be you. Kat. <laughs> I, I was I, I'd hang out in a room just to hang out, to talk to her. Cause I loved her. Anyway, <clears throat> we're at the nursing station and she rings the buzzer and she says, there's a, uh, a lizard in my room. <sighs> And everyone is laughing and she rings the buzzer again and she says, there's a lizard in my room. Can someone come get the lizard? And everyone was ignoring her. And I, I went down to the room and her room was across from where the fa- our family area was. We had a fish tank and in the fish tank was a salamander. And that little dude decided he to get out, out of the fish tank <laughs> and march into her room. And he was at the foot, he was by her bed when I came in. Said, is this a lizard? She said, yes. <laughs> so. Well, you know, she was totally dismissed. And that was another early lesson that I learned. Um, and sometimes you can't say exactly what you need when you're a, a person that's yeah. ill. Right. So as a caregiver, and it's so hard sometimes when as caregivers, you're, you're, you're giving 110%, you're tired, you're frustrated, right. you feel you're doing everything you can. And the person you're taking care of does not seem happy with what you're doing. Yeah. So, so, um, you have to go beyond that and sort of think about what's really going on. Um, so maybe uh, something about home was, um, you know, I mentioned that my husband and I like music and you like music, Cal. So maybe, for example, someone's missing the music that they had at their home or the records they had in their home. So maybe you say, you know, this is your favorite song, mom, would you like to hear it? And then you play some music together. Mm. Or maybe you dance to that music, or maybe you pull out a photograph album and you sort of look at pictures of the old home or whatever. You sort of go beyond the, the initial meaning of the words to kind of figure out what's really going on. And I think that takes some of that stress away and some of those negative emotions, frustration and anger, if you, you go beyond that. Um, when my mom was really sick, she was, uh, she was uh, really abusive. She and she was a loving, wonderful mom, but she threw me out of the house, and it was the worst worst day of my life. And um, and I was able the way I coped with it and I dealt with it was I thought this is the disease talking. This isn't my mom. And then um, it was very painful, but I didn't personalize it. And then the beautiful thing was when my mom was on her literally on her deathbed, she came back. Mm. She was. The, a loving mother so we all you know got to see the mother that we loved before she died Ugh. she came back in all her glory and so that that was that's the memory I have of when my mom died the beautiful part not the other yeah, another thing to do is just remind yourself this is this is the disease this it's sort of like an alcoholic who drinks and they do nasty mean awful things you have to remind yourself that it's disease and it's the same with things like dementia and Alzheimer's where a personality changes and a person becomes someone you don't know or they become angry or abusive. Um, 
you have to remind yourself it's the disease and that it's, it's not something they can control and they can, that they can help. Mm. And that helps. That helps. To yeah, definitely. I would think so. Yeah. My mom had a, a very sick mother growing up too. And um, she had brain cancer. And as she uh, got worse, she would, she would say things she didn't mean also. And, and, you know, just act out of character, but it, in a way, you know, my mom's the most empathetic person that I know. And so I, I don't know if she hadn't have gone through that. If, you know, I'm sure she would still be empathetic, but it's almost like a beautiful lesson in and of itself. If you can see what that person's going through and know, okay, they're saying these bad things and they're treating me not how I want to be treated, but remove yourself from it you know, mm-hmm. and see it from a different light. It's, mm-hmm. it's, so, it's like, that's a lot of growth, especially as a young person to, to have to endure. Age. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I'm so curious on the patient advocacy side of being a social worker and things like that. Have you had situations when maybe you're trying to do what's best for the patient, right? Because that's what your, your role there is to do is to work with those doctors to give them the best care. What happens in situations when their families aren't on board or when things get brought up in that sense where it's, you're not on the same pages with the doctor. The family's not on the same page. Yeah. I'm so curious about that dynamic. Yeah. So I had a situation like that. I had a woman that was in the intensive care unit and her daughters were arguing about, uh, should she go in a feeding tube and should she go home? One wanted her to stay in the hospital. One wanted the feeding tube, one didn't. This comes up with caregiving all the time too because family members always have an opinion about what you should do and how you Say it louder, Iris. (laughs) (laughs) So um, what you do is um, you, the first thing, if it's possible, you figure out what the patient wants. Of course, yeah. And, and if, if you can get that, that's, that's a starting point for a family member. Then I could go to one of the daughters and say, I had this discussion with your mom and it's really important for her. She doesn't want the feeding tube, but it's really important for her to go home. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't coming from me. And that wasn't right. me saying, this is what you should do. And so what I see in my, my role in that situation is to be a bridge and to help people communicate. And so I sat down with the, with the one daughter and I told her that. And then we had a meeting with the mom and the two daughters together. And we all ended up on the same page because I helped mom articulate what she told me I, mm-hmm. with her permission. Um, and, and then um, I got the daughters talking to each other and eventually the one daughter recognized that this was the thing that, that mom wanted and she didn't want to stand in her way. And so, so she was able to agree to bring her home. Yeah. Without the feet, without having any more nutrition, and so that, that's what you do. You try to um, you try to find a common thing. Everyone's well. Most people's goal when they're with a loved one is you want them to be as healthy for as long as they can. You want them to be independent for as long as they can, um, and and you want everyone wants to be in control of their lives mm-hmm. um, and make decisions about their lives. And that's what happened with my patients on rehab. All of a sudden, they couldn't do the things they ordinarily did, and they had to depend on other people. And so, so, so what you want to do is, and I, I say this in the book, 
you want to have this conversation long before you're in the middle of a crisis and long you want to be proactive about it so when when people are healthy you want to say you want to say to them i love you i'm going to be here for you let's talk about what i can do to help your life be as fulfilling as healthy and independent as possible what what are your wishes what do you think you're going to want when the time comes when you may need a little more help do you want it do you want to stay at home are you going to be okay with someone who's not a family member helping you or do you want family to help you would you be okay if you needed more help going to assisted living let's talk about what things you like and that's a huge burden off the caregivers and that's a wonderful conversation that you can have and even when you bring it up the first time if if they don't respond or they say i don't want to talk about it. i don't want to think about being sick yeah doors, that happens all the time i mean we've talked about that people just shut it down mm-hmm. yeah. right but the door the door is ajar and you've laid the groundwork for that conversation and so you can go back to it and you can say do you remember when i started talking to you about this I think I think now might be a time when we I really want to hear from you and you want it to be a collaboration that's the other thing you try to bring in other family members too as a part of it um, people that you know are going to be involved um, close family or even friends or whatever um, because a lot of times the problems happen because there's conflict because the conversation never happened and all of a sudden you're in this crisis and everyone's going in crisis mode and they just and everyone has different ideas about how to how to move forward or what needs to be done and it becomes very um, it, it's instinctual and it's conflictual <laughs> and it's I'm doing it my way forget you kind of thing but if you're if the person is healthy and they can communicate and you know what they need and that conversation is there and it's not me saying i don't care what you say mom we're going to a nursing home it's collaborative then that takes away a whole lot of the friction that occurs later on yeah how is that um how is it different when you're dealing with a patient that does have dementia or the the very you know how do you advocate for that patient I know you said that you can kind of decipher kind of what they're trying to say to sometimes you, you can sometimes, sometimes you, can't. you can't so does yeah the, yeah, yeah. So that's a tough spot to be in it's a really tough spot to be in and um, of course it helps if you knew that person before and you knew the kind of person they were and uh, like you described seeing seeing um, your mom dealing with her mom yeah. so that gave you clues about what her values were. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, that's what you rely on. You rely on on previous relationships, um, previous things that you saw, things that they said that gave you some notion about what their their thoughts, their ideas are, and and based on what you know about the person before Mm -hmm. they had the dementia. and then, and then you go from there. And then there are times where someone says, I don't want help and they need help. Yeah. And there's no two ways about it. It's beyond what you can do at home. How do you counsel um, like children dealing with that with their parents? Um, I mean, you're talking about adult children? Yes, adult or- children. Sorry, yes. Thank you for the clarification. Okay. Yes, adult okay. children. Um, well, you first thing is you talk about one of the problems that happens is I think people enter into things very unrealistically about what sometimes what they can and can't do as a caregiver. And they say, oh, I can, I can move mom into the house. It won't be any problem. And they don't take the time to sort of 
talk about all the, the steps that are involved in, in being that caregiver and how do you balance that caregiver with your job and being a wife and being a mom and getting the groceries and doing the laundry and all that stuff. So in answer to your question, what I do is I would say, let's talk about what, what um, you feel realistically you can do. Um, and let's talk about what that person, the person that needs the care needs and how do we match that up? And sometimes, and uh, I think I mentioned it in my book, so I have three siblings and when my dad got sick, I was local and I was sort of the, the quarterback for the team. <laughs> my little sister's here too. But um, my older sister wanted to help, but she's in London. And so she physically couldn't be here, but she had money. And so she, she said, I wanna contribute to help pay for the companion and maybe, maybe there's a relative in another state who really knows medical stuff. Maybe that can be the person that talks to the doctor. So you figure out who's on your team, who's going to, who, and who's going to be reliable that you can work with. You, you put together a plan. You talk with the person that needs the care and say, Iris is going to be helping you with this. So-and-so is going to be helping you with that. And then you revisit the plan. You, you try it for three weeks or a month. And that's another thing people don't do. They say, this is the way it's going to be. Yeah. And they don't, they don't change as the person changes. When you have people who have degenerative or progressive illnesses where their needs change and the acuity changes, um, you have to be flexible with that. Uh, and maybe you feel you can't take care of mom when you bring her into the home and mom is doing pretty well. And then mom falls and fractures her hip. And then all of a sudden it means someone's got to be up 24 hours a day because when mom needs to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night, who's going to be there to help? Mm -hmm. So you have to be flexible and you have to communicate as a team. You have to identify what the tasks are and who, what skill set people bring. And then you fill in the gaps with what's not there. And, um, and if it's appropriate where the person that's being taken care of, you can communicate with them and have a conversation um, they're a part of that team. Just like on the rehab unit, my patient was a part of the team. Um, so you try to make them as much a part of the team as appropriate or reasonable uh, as the conditions allow. And, and things go a lot smoother if, if, you, if you do that. That's when things fall apart too, when someone says, oh, I'll do this, and then they realize they can't and they drop out. Then there's a lot of anger about that. There's a lot of frustration about that. Um, and sometimes that happens because the person that's the primary caregiver is doing all this, all this support for the patient and, and then people criticize and then people say they're going to do stuff and they drop out and then the person that's the primary caregiver doesn't address that they just get angry they take just it on yeah and they just take it on they take it on more and more. And then they feel more alienated and they feel more angry and they feel abandoned. And then sometimes that spills over into their caregiving too. They don't mean it to happen that way. Yeah, it's an overflow into everything. And frustration comes out in ways like, you know, we've all internalized anger where we let it comes out in ways that you just don't want it to come out and you feel bad when it does. So it communication stay put. <laughs> is a huge issue. It's a huge issue when you're a caregiver and you're with the person you're taking care of and then the other people. And sometimes families just don't get along. And so that's fine. You, you know, you look at the cards you're dealt and <laughs> if there isn't somebody that you know you can rely on, um, then there are other places you can go. There may be 
you know, we choose our friends and there may be friends or neighbors that are like family that can help out. Maybe somebody at your church that could help out. Maybe there's a, a, a senior program that they can go to. There's, there's a lot of resources in the area. Um, and another thing that I wanted to mention that it's a really wonderful resource and people don't know about it. Um, there are people around the country that are sort of like me, they're, they're called geriatric care managers and they have training specifically on this sort of thing. Um, and so if, if I'm here in Chicago and my mom is in Texas, you can, um, there's a site you can go to and, um, and I wrote it down because I never remember it. It's called uh, Aging Life Care. <laughs> and you can go there and you pop in mom's zip code in, in Texas and a list of people who are skilled geri geriatric care people, they can come to the home, they can talk to mom they can find out what she needs. They would talk to you as the caregiver. Um, they know what local services are there. They can assess the situation. They can be all kind of your eyes and ears and they're available for as much or as little as you want them. And so there are options for people. Um, yeah, I didn't regardless. even know that was a thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's why I, I mentioned it because most people don't know about that. And, and they're really life, they're really lifesavers. Um, it's so important, particularly today when we're all spread out and right now we're even more spread out and we're isolated because of COVID and people can't visit family the way that we did. And so it's really important to know what those local resources are if you can't be there in the way that you wanna be there. Definitely. I did, um, I did wanna ask you in one of your speeches, you talk about identifying warning signs about our elderly loved ones losing their functionality at home. Like what, what are some of those that people need to pay attention to as their parents or grandparents get older? Yeah. So if you're visiting your parents and you go in the house, um, one thing I noticed about my dad was his personal hygiene got worse. He was wearing dirtier clothes. He, clothes, he wasn't, wasn't shaving. He wasn't um, combing his hair the way he did. So hygiene is a bit, is something to notice. Um, is the mail piling up? They're not addressing that. What's in the refrigerator? Is it empty? Is there food that's rotting? Um, are, uh, what's the condition of things that are broken in the house? Uh, are they isolating? Are they not going out when they used to? Uh, are they forgetting things like birthdays or anniversaries? Are they, how's the bill paying going? Are bills not being paid all of a sudden? Um, how messy or neat is the house? Changes in old habits that you could rely on that you didn't have to worry about when you start seeing things like that. Um, red flags. If you have a conversation with them, that's a conversation you know you had a couple of days ago. That's a red flag if they don't remember it. Um, those are some of the things to look for. Another thing to look for too is you want to make sure if they're driving that they're driving safely. That's such a huge right. issue for people. And so if you notice, if you're visiting and you notice there's a dent in the car or a dent in the, in the mailbox or the garage door's got those, I'm serious, those are things to, to look for. Um, just general, because sometimes people even, they, they aren't very good at assessing themselves. Right, I come from proud, 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 proud people. So the likes of like, if you were to bring something up like that, you know, that could get shot down real quick. <laughs> right, right, right. And you know, you don't come over, you know, we do come over, a lot of us do come over and say, oh my God, the house is a mess. Yeah. Um, 
we did it when my mom died and my dad was living in the house. It really became a mess. So we sent him on vacation and we had a SWAT team of maids come in and clean the house. So I didn't say to him, God, dad, the house is a mess. But yeah. We did take care of it. But yeah, you, you have to be um, you have to be careful about how you dress it. And um, you want to be gentle about how you dress it. But those are red lights that I would say are going off. And you also want to pay attention to how they're moving around. Are they having a hard time getting out of a chair? Are they, are there things in the house that they might trip over that are dangerous? A lot of people, God, I, I read somewhere like 60, 70% of the falls in people's homes are in their bathrooms where they're getting out of a tub. Or they're, mm-hmm. they're so you want to kind of look at the house with new eyes as they're moving more, more carefully or their balance is off or, and make sure that it's a safe environment for them to be in. That's huge too, because that's the time when you you need to have that talk if it's not not so safe. Yeah, yeah. Before something worse happens. Yeah, exactly. But uh, my so my dad, I, I just want to address their no, people's please. ability to self evaluate. Uh, I noticed my dad's balance was a little off, and I noticed his walking was a little funky, and so I just said to him, "It's time. I think it's time we visit the doctor for your physical." I didn't say you you're walking funny. And we're in the doctor's <laughs> office, and um, and his doctor is my doctor. I met him on the rehab unit, so we know. Oh, know nice, him. yeah. So he's talking to my dad. He's saying, "How are you feeling?" And my dad said, "I'm feeling great. How are you? Wa- I'm walking great. <laughs> Everything's really good." And so the doctor said to my dad, um, "I need to take your blood pressure, so take your shirt off." And my dad takes his shirt off. He had a watch on his wrist, and he had a watch by his elbow. And I said, Dad, what's the deal with the two watches? And he looks down and he said, I have been looking for that watch for three weeks. I'm so glad we came (laughs) here. And (laughs) he said, thanks for bringing me to the doctor. The doctor looked at me and I was behind my dad when the doctor was examining him, shaking my head. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. As any good daughter would. Yes. Right. But my dad didn't know I was doing that. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) So the doctor said, get him to the hospital right away. We went to the hospital. He had an MRI and he had brain hemorrhage and they had to go in and do brain surgery and saved his life. And he was, he was alive for a few more years after that. Wow. But if I hadn't noticed that funny thing with the balance and yeah. the walking, it might have, it might have escaped me. And then when I saw the two watches, I knew we were in pretty bad shape. But he was totally unaware of all of it. Of all of it. Yeah. So yeah. Um, that's so wild. You know that that it can get to that. You know, you just you don't think of it like right now. You know, <laughs> like when you're right. when you're yeah. alive and well, you just don't think that it'll ever be that bad for you or for the people that you right. you care about. So it's very important to have those conversations. But, but I would say the two things to take away from it are um, not to be accusatory or not to be judgmental when you see something going on. Mm-hmm. The second thing is sometimes they are consciously hiding it. And sometimes, sometimes they're not aware. Just yeah, so that's oblivious. One, one, of, mm-hmm. one of our jobs is to try to figure out as a caregiver which which is it, and whichever one it is, you still want to address it gently, but you do want to address it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Worse. I wanted to ask you. So you said that your dad wrote a part of your role reversal book. Yeah. Um, did he write anything in there that? that sticks with you or was that difficult for you to read? I loved, loved that he did it because in my mind, he'll always live on in this book. Yes. Oh, and also people who read my book will get to know my dad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Hilarious, so, uh, by the way. <laughs> so funny. 
I think he was, he's very funny. He's very cheeky. I like it. Yes. Yeah. But here's the funny thing. When I was reading what he wrote and I was writing the book, I never, I never thought of my dad as a caregiver. And then you think about the very opening, the opening part of my book where he ends up taking care of his brothers, even though his brothers abandoned him. My father was like five or six and one of his brothers in the in winter just left him in a, in a, a playground and walked away. Oh my God. And this was a person that my father ended up taking care of. Um, my dad had a lot of issues with his father, but my, my grandfather lived with us. And so I, I never knew what a caregiver my father was literally from the time he was a little boy till the end of his life when he had the dream about he wanted to take care of my brother and sister when he was two days away from death. So yeah. that was the one thing that really jumped out at me. And I can't believe how dumb I was to not see it sooner. Isn't that wild <laughs> how that happens? Like, <laughs> it's so wild. Yeah. Um, and I learned, I learned things about him in the army too. He's, he's very focused on his time in the service and that's a lot of what's in the book. But, yeah. Um, I always knew he had a huge heart, but when he was in the army, there, uh, there was a situation where one of his own men attacked him and tried to kill him. He attacked him with a knife and, um, and his men pulled him off and saved my dad's life. And then they came to my dad and said, you want to prosecute him? And my dad, they did an assessment of this guy and he, he had the, the mind of an 11 year old. Mm. Uh, my father said, you know what? He needs psychiatric care. He doesn't need me to throw him in the brig, help him. Wow. So I, my dad always had a huge heart. I didn't know how far back that went. Those roots run <laughs> yeah. deep. I was going to say, I get it. I get it for sure. Yeah. Yeah. What do you say to um, the people, either children or adults? I think we should look at it from, from both like adult children or, or younger children who go through loss, but maybe don't get the closure or don't get to have these conversations. And they carry around a lot of that grief and loss still much later on in life, much when people might have think they should be over it by now or what, not over it, but you know what I mean? Like the different things that we think we should be doing in the grieving process. How do you help them? What's, what's some yeah. wisdom for them? Well, there's no timeline on grief. That's number one. Um, I think of it as a wave when you're in the ocean, when someone first dies, there's this huge wave that comes and just knocks you in the water and you feel like you're drowning. And then after a bit, you begin to read the waves. And so you, you'll, you're okay. But every once in a while, a rogue wave comes, knocks you on your butt. Maybe an anniversary comes or a birthday and you feel this wave of grief that you didn't see coming. Or someone walks by that looks like the person that died and you get this feeling of, of sadness and loss. And so I think one of the things to do is just to not put yourself in that position where you say, it's wrong of me to be sad 20 years later. Yes. Don't put any timeline on it. Don't put any preconceived notions on it. Second thing I would say is you keep the person alive in different ways. You have those conversations. I, my, my daughter didn't know my, my father really when, and she didn't know my mother at all, but we have a lot of conversations about them to keep them alive and to talk about them. They're so you keep them a part of your life, even though they're physically not here. Um, I think that's another thing that you can do. We model for our kids, um, just like your mom modeled for you, uh, Leanne, how we deal with grief and how we deal with someone that's sick. And we have to keep that in mind too, that as we're reacting and our kids are watching us and they learn from us too. And so 
I think it's okay for them to know that mommy is sad or mommy is having a hard time. When our friend, uh, the single friend that I talked about with the brain tumor, when he died, I came home and my daughter was here and um, she came over and I said to her, I'm really sad, Paul died. And he was such a good friend and I was crying and she was holding me. And so she saw me in a vulnerable moment like that. But then I talked about what a, a, a good friend he was and um, about what he meant to me. And, and so those are really important lessons and things things that you can do. And I don't know if there's an age limit about that. That can be with a little kid or that can no, be, absolutely. That can be with, with an adult too. Um, but I think that that's really important. Um, and we all grieve in different ways and you have to respect that too. And you have to allow people, some people too, they do ceremonies too. Some people, we do that in infertility too. Um, some people write poems, some people do a ceremony, some people plant a tree, Jews plant trees in memories of people that die. I mean, there's all kinds of symbolic things that people can do and you, you figure out what feels right to you. Yeah. And that's something you could share with a ki little kid too. If you have, if you plant a tree or you plant a plant, for example. Yeah, bring them in or, on the experience. Or Yeah, or you go to a, a favorite site place that the person that died was at, um, that kind of thing. Um, can be really meaningful too and can help help with the grief but it's important not to judge people by the way they grieve too i think that's another thing as long as i mean you get worried when people can't um uh do the things they need to, to each day to get through their lives and if they get it entrenched in the grief where they isolate and they become so depressed and they can't function at work they can't function at home then that's when you need to step in and say you know i'm really concerned i'm worried um, how can I help? Can I help you find help? What do you need? Kind of thing. Open that door. But um, I'd say people need to and and encourage people to ask for what they need too. Mm -hmm. Sometimes when you're in the height of grief or you're so sad or you're so lonely or depressed when someone close to you is gone, um, you you can't ask or you don't know what to ask. And so it's right. important when someone can reach out. When my mom died, my best friend, she's been my friend forever. She came over to me and she said, you have stopped talking. You are not talking anymore. You, you need help. And I didn't realize I had done that until mm. she said it. She said, I'm really worried about you. And so I, I ended up going, going to a counselor after she said that because I was totally unaware of it. Mm -hmm. And it was huge. It helped me so much. Uh, and I wouldn't have done that if she hadn't said that to me because I was totally unaware of it. So um, it's, it's those kinds of things, they, they feel like little things, but they can be monumental in terms of helping somebody. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's so great. good. That's so, so mm -hmm. good. Gosh, well, thank you so much, Thank Iris, you, yes. sharing all this wisdom. Thank you for just being so open with, with your story mm -hmm. and with what you've been through and just giving us so much wisdom, like Leanne said. I mean, I just, oh. this is one of those that I'm just gonna, listen back to a bunch of times and I think I'm going to get a gem from it every single time. So we just oh. appreciate you so much for coming and hanging out with us today. <laughs> Thank you for giving me the opportunity. You're very easy to talk to. See, it's very easy to have the conversation. With oh, you. <laughs> we love hearing that. We're going to pull that clip. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> put that in the banner. We will. There we, we go. <laughs> well, where can people um, reach you and find you? And yeah, any last words that you would like to leave us with? Um, my website is i w a i c h l e r uh, w p engine dot com, and then I have a Facebook page, which is 
facebook.com role reversal one. And then every day I put articles or Monday through Friday, I put articles about caregiving on my Facebook page and my Twitter page and Twitter is twitter.com Iris Weichler. Uh, and I also put articles about infertility on, on those pages too, Monday through Friday. So people can find a lot of resources and information there. Um, so those are the main places to reach me. Thank you so much, Iris. We will talk to you very, very, very soon. Thank you again. Great to meet you both. Have a a wonderful evening. You You too. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to join in on the conversation, we invite you to come be a part of the HTC community. Find us on Facebook and Instagram by searching at Have the Combo and click around on our links to find ways that you can get involved. And don't forget, you can join us every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Central for Coffee and Conversation on Instagram Live. Talk Talk soon. soon.